0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust but verify. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a
1: rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by the current governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. Roger and Governor Hutchinson discuss his appointment by President Reagan as U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas, his time as United States Congressman, and his other policy positions. Governor Hutchinson shares his thoughts on immigration, the ongoing COVID pandemic in the state of Arkansas, and the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Governor Asa Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank
0: you. It's uh, great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Well, we have too, Governor, and uh, it was a pleasure having you in Washington at the Reagan Institute during our Reagan Institute Summit Education. Uh, many in Washington and across the country, of course, know you as uh, serving your second term as governor in Arkansas, and then, of course, uh, significant policy positions you've held in, in previous Republican administrations and, of course, serving uh, in the U.S. Congress. But for Reaganism, in our, our podcast and show here, you are a celebrity because in 1982, you were appointed by President Reagan as U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas. At the ripe old age of... 31. How did that happen?
0: Well, it's because uh, uh, actually uh, in Arkansas at that time, there were not very many Republican attorneys who had campaigned for Ronald Reagan. And so uh, I was 31. uh, I was pretty aggressive, and there was a short list of people who qualified. So that's the humble approach to it. But it's really uh, you backtrack just a little bit that during that campaign, I was the city coordinator for Ronald Reagan. And of course, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, uh, uh, was uh, my neighbor. He was in that community with me. And one of the things that I did, I got a full page ad out endorsing Ronald Reagan for president against Jimmy Carter and explained the reasons for it and Sam and Helen Walton signed onto that and helped pay for it. And so, yeah, it's a pretty good uh, Sam Walton story because Sam saw the wrong direction of the country. And even though he tried to stay out of politics, it's one of those times that he says, I've got to be there for this. And he put his name behind Ronald Reagan. And uh, so uh, whenever the election was over with, I walked out of the courthouse and one of my Democrat friends looked at me and he says, "Hey." you might as well put your name in the hat for a United States attorney. And I, you know, I'm 31, but uh, I pursued that. And I was lucky enough to get that with the recommendation of Congressman John Paul Hammersmith.
1: That is a great story. Um, The Reagan campaign, the Reagan machine must have just been overjoyed, overwhelmed. that here they have this young, you know, campaign supporter managed to get Sam Walton Back Reagan that that really must have had a ripple effect, huh?
0: Well, I hope so. I, it certainly did in our community for sure. Uh, but that's the kind of momentum that he had, and it was such an exciting night uh, in 1980 because you know first Ronald Reagan uh, won the presidency, uh, and then of course the Senate flipped and went Republican, and some of the old lions of the Senate on the Democrat side went down. And then in Arkansas, that's when Frank White beat Bill Clinton. So we really had an election night to celebrate in 1980. And I was right in the courthouse among all my Democrat friends. And I was just all pumped up.
1: <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, I guess Clinton had a comeback, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a, a good great moment for Republicans in, in 1980. Uh, I'm looking here over your left shoulder for those watching, and there's a picture of Reagan uh, it's got to be you there. What, what's, what's transpiring there?
0: Well, I'll just bring it up here. Just there we to... go. I don't know. Okay. You... There you go. You look
1: exactly the same. There we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, actually I have, uh, the young people come in and, uh, I show them this picture and they all recognize, uh, Ronald Reagan, but not many of them recognize me because I looked <laughs> a little bit different back then, but this is at the end of my time as a U.S. attorney. And, uh, uh, that's whenever I got to go to the Oval Office, and I got to visit with uh, President Reagan there. And of course, uh, you see in the picture the motto on his desk: "It can be done." Yes. And uh, I still tell the stories of that occasion, which are extraordinary. And as we go through this uh, podcast, there'll probably be some references to uh, that meeting and and some of how I was able to use. Uh, Uh, the conversations I had with the president then.
1: Well, look forward to hearing it. And um, you know, what we'll do on this is you've had such a rich and and storied uh, political and policy career. I'm going to jump into policy issues really as we uh, go through the various positions you've held, almost uh, use those positions as a launching point uh, for our discussion. Um, In 1996, you became uh, a member of Congress, you're elected to US House of Representatives. Um, actually, you succeeded another Hutchinson, your brother, who was previously in, in that seat and uh, ran successfully ran for U.S. Senate from Arkansas, uh, which um, I, I had forgotten until preparing for this. So give me a little sketch of what the Hutchinson home was like and uh, was politics just kind of what was for dinner every night? Um, g- give me a sense of how two brothers really ascended to such political heights in Arkansas, which, of course... Uh, wasn't really a Republican stronghold, uh, certainly when you and and he were going through uh, running for office in Arkansas.
0: No, in fact, it was a Democratic uh, state all the way through. Uh, We had no statewide uh, Republicans elected, uh, no congressional members elected at that time. Uh, We had uh, maybe one or two in the General Assembly. So it was strong Democratic uh, uh, state and, whenever I I was growing up, uh, my mom and dad were independents. They were not that uh, engaged. I think one of them voted for John Kennedy and one of them voted for Richard Nixon. They split their vote. Uh, But, uh, and I'm the youngest of six children. And uh, other than my brother, Tim, who got elected to the United States Senate and myself, uh, the rest of them are normal. They didn't get in politics. So we were a fairly typical household uh, farming uh, family. And, uh, but as I got older, uh, I mean, my first recollection of politics was in 1964, was it with Goldwater running? And uh, my brother and I sat there with uh, the can of Goldwater election night. And of course, prior to that, we heard Ronald Reagan's uh, great speech. Uh, You
1: you, you heard the time for choosing speech, you recall that from 1964.
0: I, I did hear that. I did hear that. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm just a, I'm, I'm in, you know, junior high school, but it was inspiring to me. I mean, just understand the history of the moment. And so, uh, you know, we followed that uh, through. That's just background. It's my political interest. That's how I became interested in politics. Now, you know, I went through school and uh, I became a lawyer and Politics wasn't my design. It was just I was interested in it. and I followed it. I understand how important it was. One thing led to another. uh, But uh, I lost races first. Uh, I lost a race to the United States Senate. Uh, I lost a race for attorney general before I got elected to the United States Congress. But it was a special time in 1996 when my brother Tim got elected to the United States Senate. I got elected to Congress at the same time. And it's the only time in history that brothers got elected in the same election to the House Mm -hmm. and Senate. Now, in other occasions, you know, one would get elected to the Senate and two years later, one would get elected to the House or vice versa. But ours was simultaneously. It's a little bit dicey, uh, but we won that. And it was a great joy.
1: uh, Yeah, I'm curious about that. I mean, uh, obviously, great affinity for your your brother. Uh, Clearly, you kind of Uh, We're talking engaging in politics growing up Were the political consultants frowning and saying this is a bad idea in 96, or did it seem like it would have the positive effect which resulted?
0: Well, everybody was nervous about it because we had uh, some opposition from political leaders in Arkansas that said we shouldn't have one family uh, dominate, uh, you know, one third of the uh, federal delegation. Uh, (laughs) And. And so, yeah, it was a little bit of an issue. And in fact, the way we handled it, my brother, Tim, when he campaigned, he says, you're on your own, I'll see you after the election. <laughs> and we, we, were, we were never on the same platform together. Never and on he, the stage I, together. During the election, we stayed studiously away from each other's campaign. And so it was quite a celebration after the election when we first came together, that was quite a scene.
1: Yeah, I, c- I, c- I can imagine. Now, um... When you look at kind of the coverage of your time serving in the House, what what, what filters to the top is your involvement uh, in the prosecution of the impeachment of, of President Clinton, which certainly a known figure in the Arkansas delegation, was governor, of course, that is President Clinton uh, in Arkansas. Um, was that a, a significant moment for you serving in the House of Representatives? Uh, and uh, if so, kind of what, What was the takeaway, kind of as you reflect on it?
0: Oh, it was a uh, terribly difficult moment for our country, and it was challenging for me because, you know, uh, I'm impeaching a president from my home state, and uh, that is fraught with political uh, turmoil and angst, and uh, and so it was a difficult decision. Uh, Whenever I was asked to... uh, I mean, I was on Judiciary Committee, so I didn't have much choice on right. the House side. But then Chairman Henry Hyde asked me to be a House manager, which means I'd be a prosecutor on the Senate side. And my initial reaction was, there's no way possible am I ever going to do this. But, you know, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And it really came down to my regard for the Constitution. But also that I believe that my uh, temperament, my... Uh, uh, approach to things uh, as a professional uh, uh, member of, of the Congress, uh, looking out after the country can communicate better uh, why we're doing this, the importance of it. And I just didn't want to leave that to somebody else. So
1: yeah, well, my, there I, are there are different kinds of members on the Judiciary Committee and different approaches to impeachment. You get the sober kind of uh, fact, lawyerly, you know, law based uh, uh, kind of participant, and then you have those who are, are, are less tied to the facts and the law and more impassioned by the politics. I guess that's where your point you're you're making.
0: You said it very well, and I said, uh, I've you know I'm going to be uh, charged with this in history. I at least want to be able to present my own personal views and approach to it. So yes, I took the lawyerly approach. I was a former federal prosecutor, and so. Uh, you know, I think I helped our country through a very difficult time in the right way. Uh, looking back on it uh, I, in history, uh, obviously, there's different perspectives, but I'm still pleased with the way I conducted myself. And I think I did help our country through a challenging time.
1: Well, it's a good point. I mean, So much what we think about uh, these political events and impeachment is a, is a political action is carried out by political actors, but there's the kind of institutional component and our people Uh, uh, approaching it uh, in a way that uh, advances the interests of the institution. Um, Let me ask you one more thing, one more on impeachment, then we'll go to um, some of the other uh, uh, positions and and roles you've had. Um, Obviously, President Trump uh, was uh, impeached twice by the House of Representatives. Do you think um, the Congress has gone to impeachment too much? Do you think... Uh, we're kind of entering a period where impeachment is a, is is a tool uh, that uh, perhaps should be used less. Um, even there are headlines this week that Republicans are thinking about as an opportunity to impeach President Biden over his handling of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, you're sitting in a state capitol now, we're probably really happy you're removed from the in and outs of, of of Washington. But I was curious if you have a perspective on just impeachment uh, more broadly.
0: Uh-huh. I do. I I do think we go to it too quickly and we go to it in a partisan fashion. And, you know, you can look back and say, well, that same breach was true during the Clinton impeachment. And uh, we but we worked hard, tried to bring some bipartisan uh, efforts there. I was certainly trying to do that. Uh, And uh, but it's still even with all of that, uh, because of some of the Saber rattling and some of the uh, partisan uh, advocates there, it tainted the proceedings even at that time. And then the Trump proceedings were in the same way. It came down largely uh, to party line votes and division, even though there was some crossover. But, you know, it's a, I don't think impeachment has uh, paid off for the party that initiates it. Generally, it is done, though, by conviction and general disagreement on matters of principle. So uh, you've got to really look at your heart and uh, look at the Constitution and say, is this worth it for our country and for the party to go through this? Because uh, history tells us it's very, very divisive. In the end, uh, there's a very, very high bar for impeachment of a president. Uh,
1: Let's move to your time serving in the Bush administration, you left the House of Representatives, Uh, President uh, uh, George W. Bush was elected, um, and you take on the role as administrator uh, of the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. Note that you were confirmed 98 to one in the Senate, um, which astounds me for a few reasons. One, the Senate doesn't, confirm people these days, let alone when there is, you know, uh, uh, someone, the other party, you know, you'll rarely get a 98 to one vote like that. Two, you were, as you just talked about, involved in the Clinton impeachment, right? So you would assume there's some retribution. Uh, and then three, uh, the DEA, and we'll, we'll talk about this, it has really been, had riddled, and maybe it's after, later on, but with uh difficulty getting people confirmed in the job. Uh, I was surprised to learn that we've had an acting administrative DEA since 2015. Here we are in 2021. So that 98 to one vote in the Senate, that really stands out. Um, Tell me about why you think that happened.
0: Well, those are good observations and uh, in reference to the DEA, uh, today, it is uh, shameful that we've had acting administrators there. We've had really uh, uh, so many challenges in terms of drug enforcement and the difference in uh, of federal policy versus state policy on, on uh, drug prosecution. So uh, it's a different day in time now uh, than whenever I got confirmed. Uh, we were still uh, very uh, aggressive uh, on the fight against illegal drugs and recognize the importance of the DEA, which is incredibly respected internationally. A lot of people don't realize that the DEA has offices in scores and scores of countries across the globe and great partnerships, and it's an integral part of what we do in our international controls over illicit drugs. Uh, but the interesting part, though, as you pointed out, is i just come through an impeachment trial on the Judiciary Committee, very partisan, very controversial, at least the perception of it. And uh, the greatest honor I had was that Congressman John Conyers, who was the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee on which I served, he was uh, he walked,
1: from, from Michigan and longtime member in the House of Representatives and subsequently served as chairman. I mean, he was he was an old bull for the on the Democratic side.
0: Absolutely. He walked over to the Senate with me and stood there with me and introduced me in the confirmation proceedings. And uh, of course, he did that because uh, we had mutual respect, even though we disagreed on a lot of issues. And he was willing to come over and say, this is a guy that can work across the aisle. Uh, here's somebody that you can trust. And he spoke for me and uh, I, I don't
1: know if our listeners, you know, this is kind of an inside the Beltway observation, but the House Judiciary Committee, at least today, is the most partisan, at least publicly partisan in their in their fights and the way they talk about issues and so suspicious one side or the other. That's amazing, Governor, that John Conyers did that. I mean, it it just reflects obviously the bipartisan work and approach you took and and the principled approach that uh, even your political opponents um, had to see.
0: Well, thank you. And the other part of it was the senators uh, who was voting on my confirmation actually had a chance to see me in action and get to know me. I wasn't a blank slate because I just spent 60 days over there trying a case in front of them. So they saw me at work, and, and the quiet relationships were interesting. Uh, Senator uh, Patrick Leahy from Vermont, uh, uh, either during the trial or right afterwards, uh, uh, he sent me some Vermont syrup. Uh, he found out I liked it. And so building those relationships actually uh, didn't make it more difficult. It actually made it easier to get confirmed because they actually they knew me.
1: Uh, that, that's That's a... Fantastic set of anecdotes talking about the process of getting uh, confirmed and, and the bipartisan relationships uh, for something that of course, you know, there's certainly policy differences, Republicans and Democrats over the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, of course, you, got, you were very involved in the Congress in terms of highlighting the concerns with methamphetamines, um, which this is, you know, two, period before you know, 2001 of course the whole country became seized by it in the years that followed. Um, when you were the administrator, uh, kind of looking back on it now, what would you have done differently or what would you have focused more on in light of uh, what, what became this pandemic with, with, of methamphetamines?
0: Well, uh, we did a lot of things right whenever I was there. Uh, we did, uh, we recognized that law enforcement has to work with the treatment uh, community with the education community all together. And so it wasn't just law enforcement over here on the island. In fact, whenever we would go into a community for an enforcement operation, uh, I had a program in which I wanted a commitment from the community after we arrested the cartel or the drug dealers that they would come in with improved uh, uh, resources for addiction treatment uh, education programs, community engagement, so it just didn't backfill with more drug dealers. So we 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 had the right approach uh, while I was there. Uh, the you've got to remember that one month after I was sworn in as administrator of the DEA, uh, the 9/11 attack occurred, and so uh, I went about my business for two years. But there was a uh, different concern in our country. I mean, terrorism overshadowed everything. And what I was able to do as administrator of the DEA was uh, on 9-11, for example, uh, we turned our drug informants and our agents out there trying to gather information on what might be the latest uh, next terrorist attack. And so we really worked closely with uh, the other agencies uh, because uh, if in Afghanistan, uh, we uh, uh, you know, after 9 11, uh, we went in there and, and we set up a, uh, uh, a containment operation trying to get a handle on the, on the opium operations that uh, were funding the Taliban. Right. And, and so uh, we did a lot of things there, but they were a little bit different than normal simply because it was during the time right after 9 11.
1: Yeah. Well, we're, we're as coming up on, on the anniversary, 20th anniversary of those attacks. And of course you left uh, DEA as administrator to take on uh, a highly significant role, uh, in part for the reason you just outlined, uh, when you became undersecretary for the, then the new Department of Homeland Security, focusing on border and, and transportation uh, security. Uh, tell us about that. What was it like going into a new agency, uh, DHS? Nobody really disputes the importance of their mission, but also at least uh, the agency has a reputation in Washington for just being this kind of vast bureaucracies of agencies that are knitted together that doesn't work as efficiently, as effectively as it should. What was your experience and kind of reflecting on it, um, You know, how has DHS done in the years since?
0: Wow. Well, I mean, first, uh, my two years at DA were just supreme. I, I love that agency. I love uh, the... Part of all of the agents that were really trying to do the right thing, and I would love to have stayed there longer. But whenever the president calls and says we're creating uh, the new Department of Homeland Security, and we've and and with my background as a federal prosecutor, as DEA working border issues, and even in Congress, it was really a perfect fit. And so uh, I went over there and took that responsibility. And you're right, DHS, it was 22 different agencies coming together into one new department. Uh, and there were 180,000 employees trying to build this culture of Homeland Security together. Uh, secretary Tom Ridge was the, one of the best to work with, uh, For uh, He was my boss, I was under a secretary. But I had 110,000 of those uh, uh, employees and agents that reported to me for border security, which included border patrol. It included uh, the old INS, which was Immigration Enforcement uh, Customs. And then uh, it also uh, included TSA. So I had a very big <laughs> challenge in front of me. And the one- The
1: TSA was established uh, during your tenure because TSA was, I thought, uh, maybe it existed before him, but certainly was ramped up in a significant way right after 9-11.
0: Uh, That's true, TSA existed before, but for example, our air marshal program had diminished to probably fewer than 20 air marshals. And obviously we had to beef all of that up in an emergency fashion after 9-11 and with, I mean, TSA I guess was created after the 9-11, but uh, Homeland Security was created uh, two years after that and came into existence. Uh, So it was still very, very fresh. Uh, But, you know, you look at the uh, challenges, uh, we were new, we're coming in there, my first day on the job, and you got to think about I'm a lawyer, I've been in Congress, I've been an administrator, I come into, uh, they called it the NAC, the Nebraska Avenue uh, Complex, which is an old naval facility, and I go in there and the first thing that happens is there's a plane that's hijacked from Cuba. And my uh, operations officer comes to me and said, Mr. Secretary, we've got a plane hijacked from Cuba uh, that's headed toward the airspace, of the United States. We don't know uh, whether it has evil intent or what. What should we do about this? They're asking me what we should do about this. <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs> this is my first- I
1: don't remember that. So this is kind of after 2003, but at a time where any hijacking was of course gonna get everybody's attention.
0: Well, it was, uh, you know, that was just the kind of, uh, you had to learn as you went. You had to rely upon the team that was built, but it was incredibly uh, exciting. Is probably not the right word for it, but it was intense every day just because of the threat of terrorism, the the reality of it that was so close to us. You know, we had the Uh, red alerts, the orange alerts, uh, the concentration that we had as a country and, and the threat information that was coming in. So I was in the middle of that. And for a farm boy from Gravit, uh, uh, going into the Situation Room with the President of the United States, uh, President Bush, uh, looking at these issues uh, was an experience that I'll never forget.
1: You know, here we are, we're at this 20th anniversary of 9-11 and and people have forgotten clearly uh, just how Seized, Americans were and elected leaders uh, like yourself and uh, policy officials were by the terrorist threat. This notion that you know a ragtag terrorist organization like Al Qaeda, given a safe haven in Afghanistan, could present a existential threat to the homeland. You know that that was something that. Uh, All Americans understood if they couldn't articulate it, they felt after 9-11. Here we are 20 years later, President Biden decided to pull out all US forces from Afghanistan. There were only a few thousand uh, when he entered office. Um, Yet we know there are terrorist elements in Afghanistan, hard for the Biden administration to deny it because we saw one, uh, you know, just recently which led to the death of 13 U.S. troopers. Um, do you think because of the positions you've held and where you were in government at the time that our elected leaders and uh, policy experts have forgot the basic lessons of 9-11? Well,
0: I do, and uh, in, in the biggest, I mean, I mean, we see a lot of issues as to the way that we pulled out of Afghanistan. And the biggest concern is that we, we lose uh, our intelligence gathering uh, operation uh, for uh, new terrorist activity. Uh, we lose uh, the capacity of Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, we lose uh, a lot of our capability in that entire region. And it doesn't take a uh, uh, CIA uh, operative to figure out that uh, we're going to go back to the arena of that was pre 9-11, which was where the Taliban controlled the environment. And uh, while they're not necessarily day-to-day friendly with the terrorists, uh, they gave them free operating room for their terrorist training camps. And that's the challenge we're going to see as to whether, uh, whether the Taliban can resist that or the capability to stop it. Uh, Where they became the terrorists become a threat again globally and even to the United States of America, even though it's so far away. So there's a lot of worries that we're going to go back to where we were pre 9 11. And I want to emphasize that our military men and women for 20 years there made a big difference for our country because they were there on the offense, kept us safe in the homeland. So every American blood that was shed there protected us. And that can't be diminished, but you still have to worry about the future. And as much as anything, it is the respect that we've lost in that region and how the uh, our enemies uh, and our adversaries uh, and our competitors will take advantage of that or question the strength of the United States.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, well said governor and, and you know, to me, uh, when you listen to the president explain his decision-making and views with respect to Afghanistan, uh, it really does not point to the success of our military and the policymakers that put the plans in place that the military executed, which was it kept the Homeland safe. There was another attack on, on the Homeland and certainly uh, from your experience, both uh, in the department of Homeland security, uh, looking at the border issues, overseeing the border. Uh, and then as, as governor, I mean, you know, it is clear that uh, that is a vulnerability we can't take for granted. Uh, and, and as others have pointed out, you, you really can't wish away. Uh, recently, you had uh, participated in a bipartisan group meeting of governors with President Biden. Uh, and the topic of discussion was about Afghan refugees. Uh, Tell us, to the extent you can, about that session, what the president was asking, and uh, uh, to the extent that it was um, something that you had a chance to weigh in on, both in terms of the president's decision or to a specific uh, topic, which was uh, Afghan refugees.
0: Well, I was actually at the uh, National Governors Association meeting in uh, Denver when we got word that the president wanted to have a a conference with uh, a bipartisan group of governors on the Afghan refugee issue. And uh, that was to be set uh, uh, on a particular day. But in the interim, uh, the uh, terrorist attack in Afghanistan occurred, which we lost 13 of our military personnel. And so the president changed his schedule. And so that conversation did not take place. But Uh, In talking to my other governors and Republican colleagues, uh, particularly, uh, there is an understanding as to uh, the Afghan uh, refugees that stood alongside of us for 20 years at great risk to themselves. It would almost be against the character of America not to open up our shores to them, our doors for them, and to make sure that they have a a place to come in the United States if they have no other place to go. And so uh, I'm proud of my fellow governors for opening up that door, recognizing that need. Uh, I made a statement early on that Arkansas should be included in that. And, uh, you know, we took in uh, thousands and thousands of Vietnam refugees into Fort Chaffee after Saigon fell. And uh, we will welcome those in if we're selected to uh, bring any Afghan refugees here as well.
1: So do you anticipate Afghan refugees going to Fort Chaffee or, or is that something that's not decided yet?
0: Uh, They actually, the Defense Department, uh, the State Department, came and looked at that and it was on the short list, but they wanted uh, facilities that they could bring in a larger volume. So I think it's Fort Lee in Virginia, uh, I think Fort Bliss in uh, Texas are being looked at or actually are in operational mode to uh, bring in the refugees as that uh, comes about. But then, you know, they'll be processed there and uh, vetted fully and, and uh, also, uh, you know, all the public health requirements and those kind of things. But it's going to be a broad effort that many states will be involved. They're not all going to stay in the state that they're brought into initially. Uh, they will be uh, spread out across the country, uh, and w- we don't have any details on that yet. Uh, but uh, I expect that just about every state will be affected in some way in regard to uh, the need to uh, provide homes for these refugees.
1: Well, you know, just to take a step back on on immigration policy, certainly the you've outlined with us um, kind of the moral imperative for supporting our Afghan partners, those who have fought with us, died uh, with us, and uh, of course would support those who are, who are coming in on the special immigrant visa, the S- SIVs. Um, but as a Republican governor uh, from Arkansas who has served as Department of Homeland Security lead on foreign immigration, who has been a Republican chairman of your state Give me a perspective of how Republicans are looking at immigration um, and should look at immigration because it consistently you know, is a, an issue that Republicans criticize, right? Uh, and rightfully so for my view, illegal immigration, but are also perceived as being anti any immigration. Give me your take on it, both as a um, governor and elected Republican, and then more broadly, uh, the dynamic within the Republican Party around this issue?
0: Well, uh, no one feels more firmly than I do about uh, protecting our border. Uh, I have right now uh, some National Guard uh, servicemen and women from Arkansas down on the border providing additional support. And so that's an area that we want to have uh, the protections against the illegal flow of immigrants into our country. Uh, Now, the mistake that we make as Republicans is that we don't showcase uh, our appreciation of immigrants. So rhetoric is important in the political world. President Reagan understood that. And so every time I talk about we've got to secure the border, I also balance it with saying we are a a nation of immigrants and we want to be a welcoming nation and uh, we want to have that legal path for people to come here. And just simply that rhetoric is really important to send the signal that we're just not against something, but uh, we actually balance it with understanding the contribution that immigrants have made historically and continue to make uh, in our country. Uh, And I think we're growing. I was very proud of the Arkansas General Assembly this year. You know, uh, President Obama created the DACA, uh, uh, students and and the DACA relief for those that had come in here as young people and uh, they were not uh, legal citizens, they didn't have a legal presence here, but they were brought in as young people and they're part of America's fabric. Well, uh, they have a legal presence now and the General Assembly in Arkansas this last session, which is Republican dominated, uh, passed a law that gave all of the DACA students access to the licenses in Arkansas, uh, which they're previously prohibited from because they weren't legal residents uh, or uh, citizens, but now they can access uh, the professional licensing. They go into nursing and everybody knows we need more nurses. Uh, They can go into the other licensed professions. And so that's a signal I think that's good that uh, we recognize their contribution. We just need to do more of that. In terms of the Afghan uh, refugees, there's a greater uh, commitment, uh, a greater consensus that uh, we have a moral obligation as Americans to uh, stand with them when they've stood with us. It goes, you know, there's all these caveats and you don't want to get sidetracked with them, but sure, they need to be vetted. We need to be aware that someone could try to sneak in somebody that wants us to do us harm. So we've got to do all those proper checks. But you should not uh, use that as an excuse not to let in those that have really, really been with us. And it's part of our obligation and character of our country. Uh,
1: you mentioned that uh, this outreach from uh, President Biden to speak with a bipartisan group of governors came really, I guess, to your desk, virtual desk, because you do serve as as chair of uh, the National Governors Association. and you've, you've emphasized there's a headline saying that Washington needs to hear from us, uh, us being governors, um, expand on that. Uh, you know, you've, you've had the perch in Washington, as we've discussed from many different consequential, uh, seats. Uh, but now you're in your second term as governor of Arkansas. Uh, what is it that Washington needs to hear, uh, from our governors? Uh, Well, I have
0: to divide that in two buckets. As chairman of the National Governor Association, I have to bring people together, both Democrats and Republican governors, for us to agree upon policy decisions. The one thing we agree upon, and that's what I want to advocate for, is the role of the states. Under the Tenth Amendment to our Constitution, if there's not a specially delegated uh, power to the federal government, that is reserved in the states, and uh, it's never been illustrated more importantly uh, than in the last 18 months during the pandemic as to the important role of the states play in terms of public health, in terms of management during a crisis, in terms of partnership. And so that's the voice we want to have together. Uh, and we can have that uh, you know, uh, both Democrats and Republicans that, uh, hey, let's, let's have a high regard for the states and the role that they play. There are differences of opinion. Uh, we were together. We supported the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, people came together, and it was uh, uh, it had good pay in there, so it wasn't going to add to the deficit. Now we're going to be explosively on in different camps uh, in terms of the three trillion dollar human infrastructure bill, because uh, as a Republican, that is money that does not need to be spent. Uh, we have uh, sufficient resources. Here in the state, and with the assistance we already have for rental assistance, for childcare assistance, for utility assistance, and really to take three trillion more and add to the future debt of our children and grandchildren is just wrong. And so, Republican governors will be opposing that. Uh, you'll have Democrat governors taking different positions on that. So, my job is to find the areas of consensus, but. Uh, the role of the states is important. We've never seen that more uh, than what we have in the last 18 months. Now we've got to rebuild education, uh, and my initiative is computer science education, and uh, that's something that has a great bipartisan uh, flavor to it, uh, but we can promote that as we've done in Arkansas, and I think that's uh, very important for the next uh, year as my tenure as uh, chairman.
1: Well, we want to hit on a few of those things, but quick follow-up on on computer science, um, when you came in as governor, I think the first bill you signed, or one of the first bills you signed, required every public school in the state to offer one computer science course. Yet, here we are, you know, six years later, and only uh, a few or a handful of states have uh, required the same. And um, what got you onto that? And is this is this going to be a focus of yours as chair of the NGA. I mean, it's given our economy is it's a digital economy. It would seem to be a common sense requirement. Uh, perhaps that's not common sense in Washington or across a bunch of other states.
0: Well, uh, absolutely. It's going to be a priority. And uh, we started that in Arkansas in 2015. Uh, Wired magazine had a headline that said, why is Arkansas Leading uh, the coding movement in the United States. And Have
1: Wired Magazine ever profiled Arkansas before that? That seems kind of unusual.
0: I don't think they've <laughs> ever paid any attention, but uh, they are now. And so uh, it's really helped us to attract technology companies and startup technology companies here into the state because we're producing the talent of coders and software and cybersecurity uh, talent uh, for uh, the companies that we need. Uh, But nationally, it is really a a security issue. I think we've learned, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, that we can't be dependent on software development, on technology with other companies. We've got to be able to produce it here. We've got to create the innovation here. And you start with that talent pool to do that. And that's computer science education. We can't rely upon uh, our friends in India or other places across the globe we need to do it here. And the challenge is getting it done. And uh, that's what excites me is to encourage other states, show what's happened here, but also feature some of the good things that are happening in other states that are leading this effort as well.
1: Obviously, as a, as a conservative Republican, it's always about doing what you can in government to incentivize the private sector. Uh, any examples or cases you point to where you have companies that are looking at your state looking at this requirement because they need the workforce with that training and focus.
0: Uh, Yes, we uh, partner uh, with, uh, you know, the great companies here for mentorship programs, apprenticeships, but we also have an accelerator program that we're putting state dollars into, but we're leveraging it with private dollars. So those are the relying upon the private sector to get it done, but we have FinTech accelerator where financial services brings uh, software talent startup companies from across the nation and globe here to be mentored to to, uh, help grow that company. We do that in the healthcare industry as well. And we're looking at the ag. And so those are partnerships with the private sector for startup innovation companies. And that's how you stay fresh. That's how you also bring the entrepreneurs here. It's not just about uh, one skill, but it's about that innovative spirit that technology uh, education brings. And uh, the we've got to provide that. We've got some great companies here from Tyson's to J.B. Hunt to Bryceland Foods and the food processing industry. They're all technology companies. And we want to provide that talent, too.
1: All right. Watch out, Silicon Valley. See what's happening in, in Arkansas. The, the other thing that uh, you referenced talking about the past 18 months and the pandemic and COVID. Um, There've been a lot of, obviously it's hitting everybody local level. Of course, the national politics has been seized by it. Arkansas school remained open uh, pretty much during the 2020-2021 school year. Um, what'd you learn about that? Obviously in retrospect, I'm assuming it's it's been applauded and supported. Uh, those states, uh, that didn't have their schools often open excuse me you know just you had this this gap that emerged between those who were in school and were not what's your take on that looking at it a year and a half out
0: well it was probably one of the most controversial things that i did uh, a year ago which was to say we're going to have in classroom instruction uh, and uh, there was a lot of pressure from unions teachers unions as well as others uh, that we can't do that a year later uh, the educators, everyone looks back on that and says, my goodness, these kids have to be in the classroom. Uh, they have to have that teacher contact. They have to have the social atmosphere of the school. And, and so that was something we learned. And so this year, it's not controversial.
1: Right. Everybody knows
0: we have to be there. Then the question is, well, how do we keep them safe? You know, what's the best protection we can have? How do we get uh, our vaccines out there to a greater extent? Uh, but they also, and this is just a little bit me, but I think it's absolutely real. The importance of sports and band and cheerleading. Uh, you know, these students they need those opportunities. They need to know the lessons of of being a part of a team and the depression that comes from isolation, uh, the 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 gap that comes with building your own character. Uh, that's something that's ever. Irre- hard to replace. And, and so that reinforced the importance of the decision we made to have school last year.
1: Well, that was certainly a decision that in retrospect, um, got a lot of support and people see the wisdom. Um, now here we are today, Arkansas is struggling, uh, with, with the pandemic, uh, only 40% last I read, uh, of those eligible for vaccination. In Arkansas are vaccinated, um, and then you signed a law, uh, the, a mask ban, which subsequently you said uh, you you, you regretted or preferred not to have done. Um, how would you play that differently? Obviously, you make the calls at the time they're before you, uh, but it continues to be something that the country sees by you know, those states that are uh, have a mask mandate in place, and those uh, where elected leaders are. Or not allowing for it?
0: Well, whenever our General Assembly was in session, it was April, uh, that time frame. And at that point, our cases were at an all-time low. Everyone thought the uh, pandemic was, uh, you know, ending. And so it came across my desk, a law that banned uh, mask mandates in the schools or in the public uh, venues. I signed that. And you know, as a leader, I think it's important when circumstances change, you acknowledge it and you say, we need to correct that. And the Delta variant came on. It came on hard here in Arkansas. Our cases went up, our hospitalizations went up. We wanted to have school. And so, yes, I said, I wish I hadn't signed that bill uh, because uh, I didn't know uh, what was ahead. And, uh, uh, and so I called the General Assembly back into session and said, we need to amend that law. Uh, they didn't do it so, subsequently the court struck it down as unconstitutional and so now we have the local option uh, in our schools for uh, uh, you know whether they choose to require masks or not I was advocating a simple amendment that would for those that are 11 and under that could not be vaccinated they needed to have some protection many of the schools now have made it broader than that but to me that is a fundamental uh, Ronald Reagan principle, a conservative principal to say we've got to leave some of these choices to the government that's closest to the people. You know, how can you argue with a school board that says we want to protect our children and we're going to require a mask in the school to uh, make sure they have the best protection?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is certainly the, the conservative outlook. It's it's leave it to the local leadership that are closest to the people, particularly uh, on issues like this, you can have a part of the state where the vaccination rate's high and everybody's doing well, and you can go to a different part um, of, the, of the state, the country, and, and it's not doing well. Um, what has to happen to increase the vaccination rate in Arkansas, Governor?
0: Well, uh, first of all, we've done a lot, and uh, the fear factor increases vaccination rates, the risk. And so as we saw the Delta variant uh, come on hard, our vaccinations rate went up as well. I went out in town hall meetings. I did it the old fashioned way, and I've been to 16 different cities, having town hall meetings, encouraging vaccinations, bringing the community together where they have a local doctor, being able to talk about it to uh, people that trust that local doctor. And so that's been very successful. It's helped us in vaccinations as well. So we're gradually increasing uh, and very pleased with that. We need to accelerate it even more, but working hard to uh, build that trust in the community it and I assure you it's not the government going in saying you need to do this. It's about the trusted uh, medical community, true information uh, that is persuasive to people.
1: Well, I wish you uh, success in doing that. It's, you know, correlation is pretty clear that those who are hospitalized uh, almost exclusively are those who are not vaccinated, right? So it seems to be that you have a trusted person communicate that it should be should be effective we only have a couple minutes left governor thank you so much for your time but we can't let you go before we do the lightning round where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite reagan quote Reagan speech uh and book about president reagan we'd love to hear all three but whatever you got share with us governor
0: well of course i love peggy noonan's book when character is king I love the stories that that, uh, relates about the human side of uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, I I love in terms of speeches, it's got to be the 1992 uh, speech that uh, President Reagan uh, made uh, at the uh, Republican National Convention. It was his last public address. Mm. And it's special to me because my 16 year old son was paging at that convention and I stood beside him as he stood there and was inspired by President Reagan. And amazing. so uh, President Reagan's inspired me and the second generation as well. and those are special uh,
1: that's the amazing thing about stuff. President Reagan uh, by, two, by, by that time, you know he was he was an elderly, elderly man. I mean he was old when he when he left office yet he continued to enjoy the su- support of
0: young people. Absolutely and inspired them. And of course, I loved reading the history books after the fact, where his uh, handlers and advisors were worried about President Reagan being able to give that speech effectively in 1992. And of course, he hit it out of the park. Uh, and so, for that reason, it's probably one of my favorite. You know, in terms of quotes, there's so many quotes. I I love uh, you know whenever the Challenger went down tragically and. And uh, when he talked about the, the, the finger of God uh, reaching up and, and touching that and the inspirational words, I love the, the quotes when he says, if someone agrees with me 80% of the time, they're my friend, not my enemy. And I think that's a good <laughs> lesson for today.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there, Governor. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back on.
0: Thank you. It's been great. Thank you.